about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boasts of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations, or be terrified by signs in the sky. Though the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O King of the nations? This is your due among all the wise men of the nations, and in, all, and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. Hi. The second reading is taken from 2 Corinthians 10 uh, to chapter 11, verses 15. It's on 1147. Please read with me. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only on the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for, for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. 
We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those superior apostles. I may not, have, I may, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal among, equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Okay, let's, let's get a selfie. Get you guys in it. Okay, here we go. Ah. Okay, now, let's have a look. Zan. You're not smiling enough. Right. Try it again. Okay. Now, of course, what I have to do is try and work out uh, what filter I'm going to put on that particular shot, and then I'm going to spend the next couple of hours trying to work out exactly how I'm going to kind of word that. Because, you know, if I get it wrong, I won't get that many likes. It'll be, it'll be a problem. And, in fact, it could be worse. People could say to me, you're a jerk, and then all of a sudden all, uh, there's, there's a Twitter storm and, and uh, who knows what happens after that. We live in a world of uh, social media, don't we? And it's very easy to get it wrong in social media. It's very easy to be shamed 
in social media. Uh, take, for example, Yasmin. Some of you will know of her, um, a Muslim feminist woman um, who said, tweeted something on Anzac Day. Uh, you might remember what happened to her. All of a sudden, there were thousands and thousands of people commenting on what she had to say, asking for her to be sacked. Now, a number of commentators have been thinking about this phenomenon in terms of what, what does it mean about our culture? What does it mean about the way that we're thinking about things? And one of the suggestions is that we're shifting in the way that we go about doing things, and that is we're shifting into a culture that's about honour and shame rather than justice and mercy. Um, you are honoured and therefore you are supported, but if we don't agree with you, you will be shamed as happened with Yasmin. Shamed for the views that you hold. Now, David Brooks in the um, New York Times has written about this a little bit in terms of what's taking place. And he, he's pointed out a kind of particular pattern that takes place in the honour, shame, social media kind of space. And first of all, he talks about the idea that a group of people come together and they start to agree with one another. And so they start to lavish praise on one another. They start to boast about the particular view that they hold and how this is the correct and the right view. Then over a period of time, and it could be any kind of group, over a period of time, there are people who start to enforce those views. And they keep regulations in terms of who's keeping that view, who's not keeping that view. And the person who doesn't keep that view, who doesn't think like the rest of the group, is then shamed. Uh, he goes on to comment that that has made us all extremely anxious because we're concerned about what people might think, what appearance we might have to others. We're concerned that people might shame us. They might say things that, that cut us down, that make us feel ashamed of who we are. And in that kind of culture, what's happening is honour enforces a particular kind of behaviour, and shame enforces another kind of behaviour. Just as an aside, I think that what, what's interesting about that is that it means that we're no longer thinking in, in terms of morality about things like, is it right or wrong? But more likely we're starting to think along the continuum of, am I included or am I excluded by the views that I hold? And that's having a huge impact on the way we think about what we do and what we say as people. So how do we think about this as Christians in this age of social media? How do we live as Christians? Uh, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I'd like you to listen in with us struggling with this. If you're someone who follows Jesus tonight, I'd like you to think about how do we deal with this in our current context well, we're going to come to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, and it's a very complicated passage, as you may have already noticed as it was read out. But what's interesting about this passage is that I think Paul is dealing with a culture of shame. Um, shame and honour was very prevalent in the time of Paul, and it's slightly different to the kind of honour-shame culture we're dealing with, but what's similar is that if you are shamed, you are not to have a voice. You're, people try to shut down your voice and try to say, don't listen to this person. So tonight as I think about, uh, as we think about this passage together, I want to think about it in three different ways. The super selfie, 
the humble selfie and the reverse selfie. Now, if those headings make no sense to you, that's fine. Just follow us through. But the super selfie, the humble selfie, and the reverse selfie. We'll come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's see what Paul has to say. He begins like this. Sorry, he doesn't begin like this in chapter 10. What he points out is that in the Corinthian church, he has been challenged by a group of people who call themselves the super apostles. See there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, he identifies them when he says, Now I consider myself in no way inferior to these super apostles. These guys who are, if you like, taking a picture of themselves that looks a little bit like this. They want to bring attention to themselves. They are people who are, Paul identifies as super apostles. And what's significant about these super apostles who want to bring attention to themselves is that they want to boast about what they're achieving. They want to say, look at us, look at us, look at us. Look what we're doing. And in addition to that, they want to ridicule Paul. They want to put him down and say, do not believe what he is saying. Now, they pick on three, at least three different things about Paul in this passage. They actually pick on a whole range of other things as well. But in this particular passage, they pick on three different things about Paul. See there in chapter 10, verse 10, Paul repeats a slogan that they're using. For he says, his letter, for it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Oh, imagine being a preacher and hearing that. Your speaking amounts to nothing. What a, that's terrible. Wouldn't you feel wounded? Like, here I am a preacher and actually you're speaking. That's just rubbish. You're a joke. You might write okay, but really, you're just a joke. Can you see how the shame's working here? I'm trying to pull him down and say, look, you're, you're ridiculous. Why are you even speaking? The problem for those super apostles is that they lived in a culture where the idea of sophisticated rhetoric was really popular. And people were taught to respect those who were great orators. And Paul just was not measuring up. He wasn't speaking like one of the great orators of the day. He just didn't sound right. And so what they're suggesting is, well, actually, you can't trust what he says. That's not the only problem they have with him. They also suggest that his ministry is actually not extensive enough. See there at the end of chapter 10... Paul starts to refer to the fact that they have been speaking about the extensive nature of their ministry to all the places they have travelled. He refers to it um, in verse 14 when he talks about them overextending themselves. In other words, what's happened in these verses is that people have noticed that Paul has been spending the last seven years um, around around the Aegean area. And so what's happened there is that these super apostles have taken off from Palestine, as far as we know, and they've travelled further than Paul. 
And so it seems like their ministry is better and bigger and more important. And Paul's ministry has been quite restricted in that sense. And so, really, Paul, you don't preach well and your ministry is not that extensive. You haven't gone very far. And then thirdly, there's this whole question of money. Paul is charged with the sin of refusing to receive financial help. Now, you might think that's really odd. But the situation is this. The great orators of the day received money for their speaking. The more money you received, the greater the orator you were, or it was in recognition of the way you spoke. And so if you were a really wealthy orator, people would say what you had to say was really valuable. But Paul, as we see in chapter 11, preaches free of charge. I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. In fact, he goes on and says, I robbed other churches by taking pay from them when I minister to you. When I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone here since my brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I kept myself from burdening you. Paul has done exactly the opposite of a great orator. And these super apostles are not super impressed. They're trying to belittle him, trying to say, mate, you're nothing. Now, all of this would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. And Paul recognises the seriousness of what's taking place because what's happening is people are starting to believe what these super apostles have to say. They're attracted to the way they speak and what they do. And their shaming of Paul means that people will start to listen to them more than to what Paul has to say. And Paul's deeply concerned about this because he's concerned that people will go astray, will start following a different gospel, will start believing a different thing. And you can see that in the beginning of chapter 11. It begins this way. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now he goes on to use an illustration of a marriage, which sounds a bit odd to our ears, but just bear with me. Because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure to present a pure virgin to Christ. Um, in, those days, in those days in particular, fathers were responsible for caring for their daughters and ensuring that they were ready for marriage. And so Paul is saying here, I would like to protect you. Uh, the picture here is of the church as a pure virgin. And he's acting a bit like a father. He's saying, I want to protect you. I want to make sure we look after you. I don't want you to commit adultery. Because that's what's that's what at stake here. There's the possibility that the whole church wanders away from following Jesus because of what these super apostles are doing. He goes on to describe that a little bit further in verse 3. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He paints it in terms of deception, of being led away from what um, Jesus is saying and what Jesus has called them to. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, been 
sorry, a different gospel which you had not accepted. You will put up with it splendidly. His point here is that these super apostles sound pretty convincing and you will be led astray from them and you will be worshipping a different Jesus with a different spirit. You can see why he's so concerned. Why it's so difficult for him in these circumstances because he dearly loves the people in Corinth. He planted the church. He's seen it grow. He's spoken to them many, many times. And he's deeply concerned about where all these things are leading. He doesn't want them to be deceived. Now, Paul's problem is actually a problem I've faced on many occasions myself. So often I hear and uh, people speak and I read articles and books which sound really thoroughly convincing about a whole range of different ethical issues. And the person who writes the article or puts the video up or writes the book writes in such a way that it sounds so believable. Like, oh, this makes sense. And yet the truth is, even if you just dig a little bit deeper, so often are the words and the things that are being said actually just rubbish. They don't actually reflect what the Bible is saying. It sounds good, it sounds right, but actually just a little bit more digging and a bit more thinking about what the Greek and the context is saying, you suddenly become aware that actually this doesn't make any sense at all. Or a person's understanding of the scope of the way the Bible works and the way the Bible fits together just isn't there. Now, of course, when I come along and say that, a person says, well, you're just saying that. You're just kind of, it's just your opinion at that point. And so there's a complication about how do we engage and what do we do and how do we speak about these things. Because by the time I'm taking you to the exegesis of the text and pulling out the Greek, your, your eyes are rolling and going, oh yeah, well it's just, you know, there's a debate amongst scholars here at this point. You see the very real problem that Paul has? He's deeply concerned about these people. He wants to speak to them, but he's being shamed. And he's being told that his opinion doesn't count. So how is Paul going to handle all of this? What is Paul going to do? How is Paul going to handle this context of shame as he speaks the gospel to these people? Well, I want to suggest to you, uh, first of all, he takes a humble selfie. At the beginning of chapter 10, he begins with these words. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Uh, throughout this text, we get the sense that Paul is a very humble man. There's a gentleness about what he's doing. He deeply loves the people he's speaking to. He's deeply concerned for them. Uh, this is actually quite painful for him to speak in these terms. Uh, the whole couple of chapters actually is quite personally intense in the way that Paul is speaking because he's just... Desperate to see these people love Jesus with all that they have. At the same time, though, there's kind of a boldness about what he does. See there in verse 5, we demolish arguments and every presentation that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
So there's this beautiful gentleness and humbleness, but there's also this desire to correct what has been said. Now, I'll put it like this. It looks like the man on the left, you know, gentle and humble and concerned and considerate and thoughtful. But then he's also bold like a lemon tart. I don't know. I really like lemon tarts. But the thing about lemon tarts is when you, you eat one, it sometimes catches you off guard and it's like, whoa, what was that? Well, that's exactly the same with Paul. He's got this humility and he's got this tone about him which is beautiful and loving and caring, but actually when he's being bold, it can be, whoa, that's got a bit of a bite. And so we actually see that unfold through this passage, the way that he starts to tackle this particular issue uh, in this context. Let's go back to those issues that we were talking about and start to think about how Paul unpacks these things. When the super apostles say to Paul, well, you are a failure as a preacher... What does he say in chapter 10, verse 11, in response to that? Let such a person consider this. We are in our letters what we, when we are absent. We'll also be in our actions when we're present. Basically, you guys are liars. What you get in my letters is what you'll get with me in person. You're wrong. What I say in my letters, I will say to you in person. And we actually know that Paul spoke to the Corinthian church quite harshly and boldly. Uh, There's reference to a painful visit in which he challenged the people in Corinth. And there's certainly many references to times he had conversations with with them where he's pointed out difficult things that they've done. And so there's a boldness, there's a you've got it completely wrong, you've misunderstood. But later on in 1 Corinthians 11, we hear this tone of humility. See there in verse 6? Even if I am untrained in public speaking, I'm certainly not untrained in knowledge. What he's simply saying there is, actually, I'm not like one of those great orators. You're right. I'm not particularly gifted. Is spot on. That makes sense. And we know that Paul holds that view because way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's actually said this to them. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. In fact, purposely, he says, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you. Listen to the humility in these words in weakness, in fear, in trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul's point, of course, is he just wants to get out of the road. He wants people to see Jesus. And he doesn't want his oratory to be in the way He doesn't want people to be looking at him and saying how wonderful you are. He wants people to see Jesus. And so, on one hand, he corrects them. On the other hand, he continues with this humility, this tone, this gentleness with them. 
Well, as regards to the charge that as uh, the charge from the super apostles that he hasn't travelled far enough, he says to God, says to the super apostles, "Really? That's that's significant." Verse 12 in chapter 10. For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they are lacking understanding. He's saying, really you're just saying my ministry is bigger than your ministry. How wonderful. Wow, that really matters, doesn't it? It really matters how big your ministry is and how far you've gone. Like, wow, that's going to win you brownie points. Why does he say that's insignificant? Well, let us see what he says there in verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who's approved, but the one the Lord commends. See, Paul's point here is actually what matters most in preaching the gospel in all these areas is what God has told us to do, what God has commanded us to do. Not the comparison that goes on. What's most important here is that I'm following what I've been called to do. All this comparing yourself to one another, that that just, just, it's rubbish. Bold, insightful, but still, I think, with a tone of humility. Because he's saying, actually, my area is not as big as yours. So what? It's okay. doesn't really matter. Regarding the question of money, we've seen that Paul says, well, look, I've preached to you free of charge. I was supported by the Macedonian churches. Paul goes on to say, well, actually, there's a reason for doing that. And it's because I depend on God for what he does. And I want to deny you, I want to deny the super apostles the opportunity to see themselves as equal as me. There's the bold bit. Verse 12 of chapter 11. But I will continue to do what I'm doing in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. It's a point of distinction But, you know, his dependence on the Macedonian churches is not only a point of distinction in the sense that he hasn't received funds like these great orators. It's also a point of distinction because it says, I'm completely dependent on other people who generously give to the work of the gospel. It's actually got nothing to do with my oratory skills. It's got to do with the fact that there are those generous Macedonians who have supported me. And by the way, I wanted it that way because you guys who are super apostles are really just bringing attention to yourselves. And I don't want to be in the same class. I'm not interested in that game. Because I'm actually interested in Jesus. And I'm interested in talking about Jesus. He continues to subvert the culture of his day by drawing attention away from himself, seeking to be humble and meek, but at the same time bold in what he has to say. 
And that becomes even more apparent when we consider the last point, and that is the reverse selfie. Now, when you think about it, there's no such thing as a reverse selfie, is there? Because really, a reverse selfie is, is actually a picture. But the thing about a reverse selfie, just imagine, just play with me for a moment. The, the thing about a reverse selfie is that it's not a picture of yourself. It points somewhere else. It takes a picture of something else. It's not a picture of you. It doesn't bring attention to you. And throughout this passage, that's what Paul is doing. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He actually wants to draw attention away from himself. And in fact, he puts this whole discussion in a very different frame. He gives us a very different picture of what is taking place. He says, it's not about me and the super apostles in the end, actually. Something else is happening here. See there in verse 3 of chapter 10. For though we live in a world, we do not wage war as the world does. Well, that's become evident in what he said. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul's point is here, there's something actually else going on here. There's divine power and the demolishing of strongholds. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has won the victory. He's ruler over all, but there are actually still skirmishes going on. Skirmishes going on. Not skirmishes, skirmishes. There's some battles being fought. And Paul is acknowledging that. And actually, you see that at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13, as he speaks about the super apostles again. He says, For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no great surprise if his servants, who also disguise themselves as servants of light, disguise themselves in righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. What he's suggesting here, of course, is that there's a big battle going on. And as part of that battle, Satan has disguised himself as an angel of light and his servants have disguised themselves as angels of light. You see, you and I often think about the devil or Satan as someone with a pitchfork and dressed in red with little horns, something like that. And that kind of is really obvious. If you saw him walking down the street, you go, oh, that's the devil. I, I get that. But, but far more dangerous, actually, is not that picture. It's the picture of someone who almost looks like they're saying the right thing and yet is leading you astray. And it can begin every so slightly. Imagine this is kind of the way that we're called to think and be obedient to what Jesus has to say. And someone comes along and they look like they're saying the same thing, but it's just a little bit off. Well, over a period of time, that starts to curve away from what actually is the truth. And I've seen that happen in churches, believe me. I remember a guy who joined us in a church and he, he looked great and everyone was welcoming him and including him and was getting along. And then one of our ex-missionaries came to me and had a whisper in my ear and said, 
not so sure that he believes that Jesus is God's son. I just don't know that he believes Jesus is divine. I said, oh. And by this time, this guy had created quite a, a friendship ring and people were quite interested in what he had to say. And he began talking to people about what he believed. So me and this ex-missionary went around to speak to him. And as we spoke to him, it was absolutely right. He didn't believe Jesus was divine. Now, I could see it happening. People were starting to support him, starting to like what he had to say, starting to take interest. And that can so easily happen because Satan disguises his servants as angels of light. And Paul, as he takes this reverse selfie, is saying, actually, look out there, see what's happening. There's something bigger happening here. We don't need to wage war as the world does. We actually have weapons to fight with that are different to this world. They have the power, divine power, to demolish strongholds. They have the divine power to work against every pretension against those things which set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Now, in this context, I think Paul is talking about his boldness, but also his humility. Those are the tools that he's using. Telling the truth as it is, but with a beautiful kind of gentleness and humility and meekness in the way that he's gone about doing it. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty tall order. That's a pretty big thing to be asked to do uh, with our friends, with our families, uh, even in social media, to boast in that way, to speak plainly about who Jesus is and what he's done and about the way he's reached out to us and saved us. That can feel really scary in the kind of social media environment that we're in where honour and shame is at stake. So how do we do it? Well, I want to take you back to those words that we heard at the beginning of chapter 10. Now I, Paul, myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ or by the humility of Christ. You know, Jesus was the one who walked before us, who was shamed, was bold, yes, but was shamed, even suffered a shameful death on the cross. And what he says to us is, take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I'll walk beside you. I'm with you. I've gone before you, actually. For whoever wants to be my disciple must desire themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will find, will find it. Life for me will find it. The beautiful and wonderful news is that humility, that gentleness, that boldness, all actually is found in Christ. And as those of us who are in Christ find, that enables us to be obedient in this way, to speak in this way, to go about life in this way as we engage the others around us in this culture of shame and honour. I like the way George Whitfield puts this. 
Uh, George Whitfield was a, a preacher in the 17th century, in the 1700s. And this is what he said as he was thinking about all these things. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let my friends forget me if it means that the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. And then he has this lovely line. I'm content to wait until judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. And I think that's what we're being invited to think. I'll wait to judgment day to clear up our reputations. So be bold about the gospel, but come with humility and gentleness and meekness as you speak. Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.